Well, good evening, Selfishness Part 2. Uh, you know, recapping family vacation, it was an amazing theme as we talked about dream, God's dream for our life, our destiny. Um, and it it was great just to get to see and be reminded that, that God has a purpose for each and every one of us, that He's never made a person that He doesn't love, He's never made a person He doesn't have a purpose for, uh, and then He has a, a dream, a unique, eternal uh, significant, incredible dream for each of our lives. Uh, but the class that I've been tasked with with talking on of a dream buster, there's things that could disrupt and destroy God's dream for our life and interfere with our destiny. And the class that I get to talk on is selfishness um, and how selfishness truly, there's, there's no more certain path or way to destroy God's dream for your life than to live selfishly. Uh, really, selfishness is at the root of all of our sin and failure. Uh, and it really is the thing that our destiny is gonna hinge on, whether we are selfless, surrendered servants of Christ, or whether we are selfish. You know, Jesus would say in John 15, that apart from him, we can do nothing. Paul says in Philippians 4.13, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So the paths are laid before us, all or nothing, and the choice is ours. So when I first got assigned the topic of selfishness, I couldn't help but laugh. And part of the reason that I, that I laughed is because this has been something that's been so prevalent in my life. Uh, if I take you back a bit to, to the life that God called me out of, when Christ got, got a hold of me, when he got my attention, I was a competitive bodybuilder. Um, and bodybuilders are the most narcissistic individuals on the planet. Their favorite pastime is looking in the mirror at how awesome they think they look with their muscles. Uh, on a generous day, a bodybuilder will, will post photos of how awesome they look to share with other people. And it's just totally um, a, a selfish aim and, and drive, you know, and that's, and that's where I was at when, when Christ reached me. And I wish I could tell you that Christ got a hold of me and selfishness never cropped up again, that I, I didn't look back. Um, but many times and in many ways, uh, selfishness has, has tripped me up and I've watched it in the last decade of campus ministry, trip up uh, a lot of other people. In John 10, 10, Jesus tells us that I've come to give life and life to the full. And he warns that there's an enemy, uh, and that being Satan, that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And one of the primary things that Satan does to destroy us is to put a mirror in our face, to get us to look at ourselves. You know, it, when we look at what happened at the, at the fall with Adam and Eve, it wasn't Satan coming to Eve and saying, hey, come bow down to me, come worship me, call me God, blaspheme Yahweh. It was Satan seducing and alluring Eve to be your own God, to do you. Say, okay, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to eat this fruit because if you do, you're going to become like him. You're going to become powerful and amazing and awesome. And we know the story. She, she took the bait. She took the fruit as, as did her husband. And they fell. They didn't become greater. They became less. They immediately became ashamed and insecure and were off in hiding. Uh, but Satan's strategy is to get us to destroy God's dream in our life, is to get us to, to look at ourselves. And what we, we need to do is we need to look at something far greater than ourselves. We need to get our eyes fixed on Jesus, 
on his beauty, on his majesty, and on his purposes. Uh, so right at the, at the heart of the call to follow Jesus, we're going to look at a couple passages on that. Uh, what Jesus has to say the cost is of following him. And this is in Luke chapter 14. I'll be reading out of verses 25 through 33. Um, if you've been through our Pathway to Becoming a Disciple study, you, you're familiar with this passage. Um, but it's really important to note the way that Jesus addresses a crowd that was interested in him. A crowd of, of thousands had come and they wanted to hear from him. And Jesus wasn't super excited about the crowd. He was actually a little bit skeptical. And he wanted to know, should you be here? Are you really serious about me? And so this is what Jesus says to this large crowd, starting in Luke 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus looks at this crowd and he tells them, hey, are you sure you should be here? Here's what this costs you. If you don't hate your father, mother, brother, sister, wife, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. All right, so this passage throws people for a loop. I have to have it read multiple times in all the studies that I've, I've been in with people because all of a sudden you hear this word hate from Jesus and that is, it's just contradictory to everything else we've heard Jesus say, right? The greatest commandment, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So here, Jesus is, is using a very strong word and hate, and he's using this in a comparative sense. This is a comparative, uh, this is a use of, of hyperbole to get our attention. Jesus is saying, hey, if you don't love me, so much more than these other relationships. And he deliberately chooses the closest relationships to us because those are uh, the, the greatest challengers to the throne of our heart. And he chooses these relationships and he says, hey, if you don't love me so much more than these other people, that when someone looked at it and said, compared to, compared to Jesus, it looks like he couldn't give a rip about these other people. If you don't love me like that, if you're not ready to have me be on the throne of your heart and to call the shots and to lead and guide and direct your life, if you will not let me be Lord and ruler of your life, I cannot be Messiah. I cannot be your savior. And you cannot be my disciple. Is what Jesus has to say. And do note that self is in there. If you do not hate yourself. Because we will either live to please self or we will live to please Christ. We'll dive into that a bit more in the next passage that we look at. Verse 27, he says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is, is talking not figuratively at this point. This is, they were familiar with Roman crucifixion. And uh, that they had seen this in their, in their lifetime. And Jesus says, hey, if you're not willing to pick up a cross with me, and follow me and be crucified and die in the same way that I'm willing to die, you can't be my disciple. I can't do anything with selfish people. He goes on, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person has begun to build and wasn't able to finish. 
So he's saying count the cost in a relationship with me. Don't start it and then quit halfway through when it gets tough, when it gets difficult. But see this thing through. Verse 31, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So they're saying, okay, if there's, if there's going to be a war, you, you look at, man, do we have a shot at winning this war? And you, you size up and, and decide. And, and if you are fearful and hesitant, you just throw in the towel. You ask for terms of peace and for surrender. And here Jesus is saying a, a couple things about surrender. First, we're to surrender to him entirely. We don't want to fight Jesus. He's not the one with 20,000. He's the one with 100 million angels at his disposal. Uh, we do not want to be against him. We want to surrender to King Jesus and we want to be on his side. But secondarily, there's going to be a war. There's going to be a battle that we will find ourselves in, a spiritual battle when we do pick a side and we stand for Christ. And we're going to have Satan and his hordes and the world and its systems of values coming at us. And Jesus is saying, when it gets tough, don't quit. I can't. I can't have you as my disciple if when you're in war and you start getting shot at, you run back to me and say, oh my gosh, you're shooting at me. What's going on here? It's, it's a war. It's a battle. And Jesus wants us to know that. He goes on in verse 34. And I, it took me a long time to really understand this part. It used to just seem so, so random that he would transition here. Uh, but he says, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So it, it, this stumped me, and I, I just, I just kind of didn't know what to do with it, so I didn't incorporate this passage very often. Because I'm like, okay, what are we doing talking about? What's going on here? Jesus is talking about salt. right? So here's a callback. Jesus says, you're to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And then he begins talking about, okay, salt, is, it's good, right? It, it has value. It, it, it has purpose. It gives zest and taste and flavor, and it preserves. There's a lot of value in salt. Salt's good, right? But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? So if salt loses its saltiness, okay, what's it, what's it good for? It, it no longer has a purpose and a value. And he goes on and he says, okay, it is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile, it is thrown out. So Jesus is saying, okay, if you're not willing to give up everything to be his disciple and all of what we just walked through in this passage, then you become this, this false salt that doesn't have saltiness, that, that isn't valuable. And he, he speaks very uh, pointed here as he says, okay, that, that salt that's supposed to be the salt of the earth, you and I as disciples, man, if it loses its saltiness, disciples that, that won't go to the cross for Jesus, that won't give up everything and selfless surrender, he says, okay, that kind of salt, man, what's it, what's it good for? It's useless. It's not fit for the soil. See, soil's good. Things grow in the soil. But, but the salt, man, it would mess up the soil, Jesus says. And then he says, it's not even fit for the manure pile. It's thrown out. See, even manure has value. It's, it can be a fertilizer. And Jesus is saying, 
Man, if you're a selfish disciple, you would ruin crap. That's what he says. And then he just drops the mic and says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So selfishness is an incredibly significant thing. Selfishness is just antithetical to the call of a disciple, to a walk, an appropriate, a real authentic relationship with God. You know, the Apostle Paul um, is probably the most influential Christian to, to ever be. I mean, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. So any of us who are in Christ that aren't of Jewish heritage, uh, it, that can be traced back to some degree to the Apostle Paul and his influence and his commitment to the cause of Christ. And one of the things that, that we see as a secret to how is he used in such a powerful way by God is the mentality that he expresses. In Galatians 2.2, he says, I no longer live. I've been crucified with Christ. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And so what God desires, what God wants when we come to him is for, and, and if those of us that have been baptized, what we said to God is we, what I said to God when I surrendered my life to him in baptism is I agreed. I said, God, you're right. Brent Bilby is messed up. He hurts himself and he hurts other people. He needs to die. And in that, we die to ourselves and get buried with Christ to leave that old life behind, to be raised up, to live a new life, cleansed, forgiven, filled with His Spirit, empowered to live in a way that's no longer totally selfish and self-centered and all about us, but it's actually about God and bringing glory and honor to our Father. And it's about blessing the people around us and being a blessing to our family and those who would come after and to the people that we would work with and that we would live near and that would be in classes with us. That is the aim and that's what God desires. That's the purpose that He calls us to. See, God's dream for your life is so much bigger and greater than your dream for life. For your life. There's, there's really two fundamental problems with the dreams that we have for our lives. And number one is that they're totally selfish. They're all about us. And number two is they're way too small. See, we dream of things like salary, sex, and status, accomplishment in the here and now. God dreams of using you to impact nations and generations, to break cycles, and to make a difference, to bring the kingdom of God to your college campus. That's the dream that God has for you. And there's no limit. I, if you hear anything in this class, please hear this. There is no limit to what God can do through a man fully surrendered to Christ. What God has done for any of his children, he will do for and in all of his children. The defining characteristic of anybody who's been used by God in a great way is a selfless surrender to Christ. You know, early on in uh, the ministry training program that I was privileged to go through with Lynn Stringfellow, he had me read the book, Absolute Surrender, by a guy named Andrew Murray. And Andrew Murray had raised up um, many, many multitudes of disciple makers. And what he had, he had, say, he had said was the defining trait, what, what he was able to work with came down to an absolute surrender to God. He's saying that those that were sound on this point of an absolute surrender to God 
could always be helped, they could be trained, they could be taught, and they could become useful. Regardless of their natural gifting or ability, but that those that were not sound on this absolute surrender to God, regardless of the gifting, ability, talents that they possessed, if they weren't sound on a selfless surrender to Christ, they couldn't be useful in the kingdom. Sounds a lot like what Jesus was saying about that salt that loses its saltiness. All right, the next passage we're going to look at is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And here, we're told about something that's going to take place later on in the church. And that it's going to, it's going to be terrible. But it sounds so common. Right? So I want you to take a moment to, to really hear this passage and let it, let it sink into what God has to say. Right? Because we're told to, to not conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so we're told things about self and self-love. Songs have been written about it. Whitney Houston had a big one in the 90s. The greatest kind of love is learning to love yourself. That's what most of modern psychology is built upon, is you need to learn to, to love yourself. And if you love yourself, all your ailments will, will be alleviated. The problem is you have an inferiority complex. You see yourself negatively, but really you're so great and you're so awesome. See, even this junk has crept into the church. I've heard people uh, preach on taking passages like love your neighbor as yourself and twisting and distorting that in a way that, that they would go on to say, well, don't you see, you've got to learn to love yourself first before you can love your neighbor. And that's not the way God talks about this at all. In fact, God says that nobody hates their own body. Like that's, that's you know, the, the people that say, I struggle with my, my self image, I struggle with loving myself are some of the most selfish people that I've ever talked with. The men that get together with me about that and relay that to me, I, I just want to smack them because it's the issue is you love yourself a whole lot. You talk about yourself all the time. Every time we get together, we've got to hear about you and what's, what's going on with yourself. And it's actually the thing that ends up killing us if we don't overcome this. It's kind of like Jesus knew what he's talking about when he said, anyone who wants to save their life will lose it, but anyone who loses their life for me in the gospel will find life. See, and that's the kind of life that he's talking about that we talked about in John 10, 10, that it's life and life to the full. But it's contingent upon a selflessness and a losing of the life. So, okay, Paul writes to Timothy and he warns them about what's, what's going to take place later on and there'd be terrible times. And so here we go. Second Timothy chapter three, Starting in verse 1, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. He said it's going to be terrible. It's going to be awful because people are going to love themselves in the last day. And here he's talking about the church. Like the world has always been the world and will always be the world. But what Paul says it's going to get terrible is this junk's going to slip into the church. And people are going to be lovers of themselves. 
And I've heard one of my favorite preachers, Francis Chan, talk about this passage. And he says, really that, that self-love is the sewer pipe that the rest of this junk flows, flows through. Right? And so he goes on and he says, they will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Right? Why would you love money? Because you love yourself. They will be boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And then he tells Timothy, and the word of God, alive and active, speaking to you and I, have nothing to do with such people. So we should not be those people. Right, that last part, having a form of godliness but denying its power. You know, I heard Mackey preach on this one year. And he, he likened that, that very verse. He talked about, uh, like, if you were in an airport and you had a, a layover, an unexpected layover, and your phone's dying and you're rushing, it's on 1%, you need to let your family know that you're going to be super delayed in arriving home and you're rushing and phone's on 1% and you see an outlet and you go to plug in the charger and you realize it was just a sticker. It has the appearance of having some, some power there, but, but there's nothing really there. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's like when we claim Christ, but we're lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That there, the appearance is there, but the power's not there because we're not plugged in to the source of power. We're not plugged in to Christ. We're not plugged into the Father. We're not allowing the Spirit. We're quenching the Spirit rather than allowing the Spirit to manifest Himself powerly, powerfully through us. And so let's get practical. Let's talk about areas that, that selfishness uh, can show up. So one of the first areas that I want to address the first area I want to address that selfishness can show up in is time. Specifically in how we view and perceive time. Put, frankly, is it your time or is it God's time? See, if you think that it's your time, you're going to get very selfish with it. Ministry is going to get in the way of your aims, dreams, and desires. You're going to find things like reaching out to your classmate as being inconvenient and taken away from your time studying. You're going to find things like arriving early at CrossChat to get set up and making sure that you're bringing something, contributing to CrossChat, and you're giving rides, and you're sharing and inviting people and bringing people to CrossChat. That's all going to seem really inconvenient. Or when crosstats running late and people are really connecting and there's open doors and you have opportunity for deep spiritual conversation, you're going to get annoyed that you can't just go home right away. See, I, I hear this come up when people start talking about the one that just drives me nuts is this idea of me time. Well, I needed some, some me time. Who told you that it was your time? God gives life and breath and everything else. It is all God's time. See, because when we get selfish with the time, we have all these different compartments. And we've got over here's family time and over here's study time and over here's 
blah, blah, blah time. What, whatever the hobby is, you fill it in. And, and then over here is ministry time. When in the reality, it's all God's time. God is first and there is no second. And he will provide you with exactly as much time as needed to accomplish his purpose in your life. See, sometimes when we, feel, when we feel like we're constantly running out of time, we may be pursuing some things that are, that are outside of the will of God. We need to be willing to address that. We need to be willing to surrender the time that we have to Christ. Because it's this life, it's quick. Scriptures speak about it as, as a vapor or a mist here today and gone tomorrow. It's going to be over like that. And we ought to invest our time in the kingdom and the things that are going to last forever. The second area that we can get selfishness, that, that we can get tripped up by selfishness, is in our, in our finances. The first place to look at um, selfishness and finances is, am I tithing? You know, that's something that God lays out and he gives the reason for it in the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, I'm teaching you to tithe so that you will learn to put God first in all that you do. Right. And the idea of the, the first 10% is what the tithe is. That's literally what the word means, 10th. But the first 10% honoring the Lord with your first fruits is recognizing, okay, who gives life, breath, everything else? Who gives the ability to produce wealth? Who provided this? Who's Jehovah Jireh, God, our provider? He's the one who meets my needs. Okay, he gave me money, and I, and I recognize the source of that, and I give the first 10% back to him. And there's a, a lot of cool promises that he makes that, you know, if you're not doing that, you're missing out on some of the blessing that God wants to bring about in your life. Truly, all of his commands are good and they, and they lead to life. Um, you know, it's, it's in regard to our finances. It's the only place in scripture where we're told to test God. And that's in the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi chapter 3. That would be worth checking out. And this is an area of struggle for you. And so that's just step one on that. Um, would, would, have to, would have to be the tithe. And then you look at, you know, the, the rest of it. Um, who's... Whose money is it? And that's the pertinent question. Is it your money or is it God's money? That's going to radically affect the decisions that, that we make with how it's spent. If we deem it to be our money, then we're just going to spend it selfishly on ourselves, getting all the things that we want. But if we view it as from God, we're going to use it for the kingdom. We're going to use it for other people. You know, I've heard Rick Warren say that uh, if you love money, you will use people. But if you love people, you will use money to help people. And so this is an area that, you know, we get funny talking about money in the church in America. And I think the reason is because we're all filthy, stinking rich. And I know some of you don't like hearing that, but that's the reality. We hear talk about the evil, nasty 1%. And the reality is if you make more than $33,000 a year, you are a part of the global 1%. So the reality is uh, we are very wealthy here in America. Um, and there's a deceitfulness of riches where, you know, if you ask people if they're rich, 99% will say, will say no. But it's, okay, where do, you, where do you put that at? 
Anyways, okay, so we get funny talking about money, but if we want to be serious about preaching and teaching like Jesus did, then we're going to talk about money because Jesus talked about it a whole lot. In fact, he talked about money more in the gospels than he talked about heaven or hell. And why do you think that is? It sure ain't because God needs your money. It's because of the ability that money has to take our hearts. Jesus would say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. And you can store up treasure in heaven for yourself and free up your heart to love God and to love people and actually find peace and contentment and true security. Or you can choose to view it all as your money and you're never going to feel like you have enough of it. You know, I think it was Warren Buffett, but who knows? It was, it was one, at one point the richest man in the world, and he was asked, how much is enough money? And I said, just a little bit more. Right? So this idea of, of contentment, it's so elusive if we don't have the right understanding on finances. And God wants to free you from all of that. God wants you to take hold of the life that is truly life. But if we're serious about pursuing God's dream for our life and fulfilling God's destiny, then we need to be selfless in the area of finances. And the next area uh, of, of selfishness I want to talk about in regards to, in regards to hobbies. Uh, and we'll get, in, we'll get into work and studies uh, here in just a moment, but in regards to to hobbies, um, are you being selfish or selfless with those? You know, God shaped you and I in specific ways, where where we've got things that we really we really enjoy, uh, and that are that are just fun to us, and and that's that's cool. There's there's nothing wrong with that, uh, but that's an area that we can be selfish or selfish in. You know, like for me, I, I love uh, combat sports. I always have since I was a little boy. Uh, and I really love jujitsu and I get to train jujitsu, but that's an area that I really have to check myself because of my tendencies to be, uh, gosh, how would you say it? Uh, hyper-focused, obsessive. Um, so I have to put some guardrails in my life to make sure that, that I'm not becoming selfish in this, this hobby that the Lord lets me uh, play around with uh, and, and miss out on God's purpose for my life. So some of the things that I, that I do to avoid that um, or it's something that, that I've addressed and talked with about Adam that he can, he can gauge and, and look at it in my life. I get together, you know, a, a sacred time in my schedule is my weekly meeting with Adam Farnsworth. Uh, and we get together over, over lunch and, and some, and he's my best bud sometimes. And, and a lot of times we're just laughing and having fun. Uh, but iron's supposed to sharpen iron. So we talk about the hard things and I make my life totally open to him and share what's going on. So we've, we've talked about, you know, how can I make sure, hold me accountable that I'm not becoming selfish here? You know, and a couple of things that we came up with is that I'm, I'm never going to compete in jujitsu. Um, just, it, it's not wrong for anybody else, but I just, I, I know myself and um, to keep the main thing the main thing, uh, that's a guardrail that I have to have in place. Something else is that um, I make uh, jujitsu and, and really all that I do um, open to my guys. Uh, and I've cleared it with my coaches that, 
The guys can come train with me and we can do that together. And we can do that with a purpose and a focus of we're try we're not just there, you know, trying to, to learn this sport or trying to see who can sub who, but we're there even with the purpose to see how can we reach out to and share the love of Christ with the people in the gym. And so those are a couple things for, for me that have been helpful. Uh, and so, you know, whatever that area is for you, whether it's video games, whether it's anime, whether it's a sport, just making sure that you are, you are being selfless and that and not being selfish. And the reality is it ends up being a whole lot more fun. Um, when you're, when you're selfless, like to get to do what you love that God put in your heart and that you love and to get to do it for God, um, is the ultimate double whammy, you know? So uh, an example is, you know, again, I love the combat sports. So I'll, I'll watch UFC. I'll catch every pay-per-view. Um, but rather than just watching those on my own, you know, I, I utilize those. Either I buy the pay-per-view and we open up our house for it and have our people and any guests that we can get to come over or go out to Buffalo Wild Wings. And it's so much richer and cooler that we've got to connect with people that we've gotten into Bible studies and seen them become disciples through this avenue. And I get to watch the fights with, gosh, 15, 16 of my closest friends. It's, it's more fun that way. Um, so whatever that avenue is for you, whatever that, that hobby, I encourage you um, to look at that once again as something that's not, that's not selfish in me time, uh, but that would be selflessly surrendered to Christ. And the next area that I want to focus on is school or work. Uh, you know, wh whatever stage of life that you're at there, you know, if that's work for you, here work. Uh, if it's school for you, here's school. Uh, but a recognition, are, are you there for yourself or are you there for God? That's a pertinent question. Why are you in the classes that you're in? Are you there for yourself to get the degree, to get the job so you can have the dream and family and hope that you innately within yourself conjured up and, and want and desire? Or are you there because God ordains times and places so that perhaps someone will reach out for him and find him, though he's never been far off. See, God ordains our steps. Proverbs 69 says, In their heart, man plots their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So wherever you're at is, is right where God wants you to be. And he doesn't want you there just to get a degree. And he doesn't want you at the job just to get a paycheck. Those are side benefits. Those are side blessings. He has you there to reach the people that are around you. You know, and that's so many of our stories. We were met on college campuses or we were met in the workplace with somebody that, that had the right purpose, that was pursuing, selflessly pursuing God's dream. And with that in mind, they reached out to us and they laid down their life for us. And Jesus would say, freely you've received, so freely give. You know, sometimes I look at and what motivates me to keep going is, is I just think about one of the coolest things in heaven is going to be getting to see the chain of people that was used to, to reach me, going all the way back to Jesus. 
And I, and I think about that and, and just all the people over the last two millennia and in your situation, think about all the people over the last two millennia, many of which gave their lives so that we could be in Christ, so that we could be saved, forgiven of sins, to have something so much different and better than we had on our own. And who are we to break that chain? Who are we to break that chain? See, Jesus isn't back yet. We don't know when He's coming. It could be any moment. It could be any time. But we know His purpose between here and now. See, this is the whole reason we weren't beamed up to heaven right after we were baptized. is because God wants as many people as possible there with Him. And so you're in your class, you're in your job to make disciples. You're there for God's dream, not for yours. And make sure that we keep that purpose in the right place. Man, I am so excited every time I see these retreats and I see people, young people, that are enthusiastic about who God is, what He's done, and what He's doing. Uh, and young, ordinary people. And the reason I get so excited about that, man, it's awesome because I know it brings glory to the Father. Uh, and also, I know the potential that there is in that. It was ordinary, uneducated people that turned the whole world upside down. And they were young. But what enabled them to do that was a selfless surrender to Christ. And if we want to be serious about the theme for our churches this year, that what we see started in the book of Acts is to be continued, that's contingent upon us not being selfish, but choosing to be selfless, surrendered servants of Christ. I'm going to go ahead and say a prayer and we'll wrap up. Papa, thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to come home to you, for giving, holding back nothing, giving your son Jesus, allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that we could have life. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to have you as our king, the only assassinated king who's alive now and forevermore. And you hold the keys of death and Hades. You're building your church. We're here because that's true. You meant it when you said you're going to build your church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. Father, I pray for us men that we would take hold of your promise that we would selflessly surrender to you so that we can be used by you to accomplish your dream and to fill, fulfill the destiny we're here for. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.